0: My dear Bagginses and Boffins, Tooks and Brandybucks, Grubs, Chubs, Hornblowers, Bolgers, Bracegirdles, and Proudfoots.
1: Proud feet.
0: Welcome to My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, an unexpected journey through the legacy of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, nigh 20 years hence. Smoke rises from the mountain of doom. The hour grows late and Gandalf the Grey rides to Isengard, seeking my counsel. For that is why you have come, is it not? My old friend, Saruman. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb.
1: And I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweeting.
0: Today's episode is The Treason of Isengard, as we reach Orthanc and see some good old wizard-on-wizard violence. But first, our spoiler warning. While The Ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies haven't. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we will also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even The Hobbit films. So we wanted to do a quick production rundown on these movies today, because we will probably find ourselves saying Peter Jackson a lot, whereas in reality these are giant collaborative input from all people involved. Hell, even the props contributed, like that orc helmet that broke Vigo's toe and got an even better yell out of him. (laughs) Teamwork. Quick history here, films were in development from 1997 through 2004, which includes the extended edition work, and primary filming took place for all three films from October 1999 through December 2000, though minor shots would continue to be gathered through 2004. All of this would be done in Jackson's native home of New Zealand, with seven different shooting units covering 150 locations. Jackson monitored all the units via satellite feed to keep it all in sync. Tolkien illustrators Alan Lee and John Howe would work as the conceptual artists, and Weta Workshop would be in charge of creating weapons, armor, prosthetics, and models, both miniature and bigoture. Designs were meant to derive more from historical than fantastical designs at Jackson's preference. Some 48,000 pieces of armor, 10,000 arrows, 500 bows, 10,000 orc heads, 1,800 pairs of hobbit feet, uh, and 19,000 costumes were created for the filming. Jackson and his partner Fran Walsh began working on a treatment for the script in 1997 and it originally looked to be two films, The Fellowship of the Ring and The War of the Ring, with a budget of $75 million. Stephen Sinclair was brought in as a third writer, though he would leave, but his partner and Tolkien fan Philippa Boyens would end up joining the writing team. During this time, there was all sorts of production issues. From demands for doubling the budget to demands to shrink the entire story into a single film. A bit of a content warning here. I don't want to elide that Miramax and specifically the Weinsteins were involved and may have prevented actors from getting roles, very actors who would later be revealed as victims of Harvey Weinstein. Not great. This would eventually lead to Jackson shopping around the trilogy with the making of video he had created and New Line Cinema ended up being the film's new home. At New Line is where the full 3 film version would start to take shape and a lot of the original cuts and sacrifices were worked back into the main narrative. There's a million things we can mention about what was cut, what was never what never made the original treatment and what came back in as the film seemed to morph from 2 to 1 to 3 movies. That may just be a future segment or episode altogether. Howard Shore of course famously did the score and like Jackson will drop his name quite a bit. There'd end up being around a hundred light motifs or so, and they'd interplay with one, eno- one another to create new light motifs. For example, each race or character that has a light motif will also often have a temptation variation that is their theme worked in with the One Ring light motif. Or Legolas and Gimli moments may be punctuated with a piece of music blending elf and dwarf themes. The London Philharmonic Orchestra would perform the score, and lyrical vocal parts of the score would be written by Shore, Walsh, and Boyens. Those are the major players for us, but much like the story itself, we will keep tacking on more details down the road, and of course things like music, prop work, and especially motion capture will be worthy of focused discussions as we hit major moments in these films.
1: Yeah, and so I think one of the the really important elements of, of beginning to have this discussion about like production and the the meta narrative surrounding it is that um, while the varying ongoing problems with the production companies and you know, the the sort of brief moments of production hell did put a lot of significant constraints on these films. And that doesn't mean that it was a film written by committee, and it certainly wasn't a film written by algorithm. And because that's true, because there's human involvement in it, um, and because the creative team in particular did make the bulk of the creative choices, um, we need to recognize that there are that there are reasons why certain choices were made and we need to be able and ready to talk about them. Um, and I am gonna be kind of like a Debbie Downer for the first little bit of this episode. And I am very sorry about that. But I but I do think that like it, it would be um unfortunate for us as a podcast to, to not engage with some of these choices and, and the the like ideological downsides to why these choices were made and and what it says about sort of the world that uh, that, you know, I say we the Anglo Sphere was living in in the late 90s early 2000s and then what it says about us as we think about them these movies in retrospect um and i think that the sort of ideological elements of um these films is something that is not often discussed with the level of seriousness that it deserves. Um, And I am finding it particularly interesting um, now in this 20th anniversary, um, as more and more journalists um, are, um, and, and, you know, magazines and newspapers and blogs are returning to to Lord of the Rings and particularly returning to talk to the creatives behind Lord of the Rings. There are a lot of interesting um, points of revisionism that are coming out um I think and and for me this is kind of no better evidenced than um an interview and um, Philippa Boyens gave with I'm gonna say it's Jezebel and of course it's not gonna be and I'm so sorry that I don't have this I definitely had it like on the tip of my tongue before we went into this but anyways she did an interview um and she was talking about like the innate feminism of um one of my favorite characters, Eowyn, um who we're not going to get to for a long time, but I think it's, like, necessary to bring her up here. And she was talking about the fact that, like, she went into writing this uh, treatment with a, a, an eye to making a feminist hero out of Eowyn. Um, and, and that is important for me for, for two reasons – Well, three reasons, really. One is that, you know, like, I I am uh, a feminist um, and a feminist historian, and I like thinking about, like, these feminist characters, and I own is very important to be for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, But reasons two and three are that um, it opens up the question of, like, what kind of feminism is... Philip O'Boyan's hoping to bring to these films. Um, and what does it say about the feminism that she has in how Eowyn's character arc and how the other women involved in, or the, the other women characters, I should say um, involved in the story are portrayed. Um, and a little bit of like production history background here is that um, of the characters that are mentioned in Lord of the Rings, um, in the early stages of production, the characters most likely to be put on the chopping block were pretty uniformly the women characters. Um, Both Eowyn and Arwen um, were at varying points going to be melded together into one character, um, and that one character was going to be uh, Boromir's sister replacing Faramir. I actually forgot that Faramir is the other character that's regularly on the uh, chopping block. Make of that what you will. Um, But, uh, you know this Arwen Eowyn mashup was going to f- fulfill the role of lady character in Lord of the Rings for a long time, um, and also going to be given her importance by her like relationship to another man in the in the film. Um, there's a lot that that goes on. Um, at, at some points, they were going to have um, Eowyn basically disappear in Helm's Deep to help a, a woman with delivery of her child um which is emphatically not something that happens in the books um so there are a lot of these choices that happen that i think merit talking about and i think it, with, with awen in particular and arwen um i'm going to like not be a huge amount of fun as i talk about them because i take this stuff quite seriously and i think like the message of feminism and, and empowerment that is put forward um in retrospect by Philippa Boyens on the sort of 20th anniversary victory tour is kind of frustrating, um, in some ways, because it's not something that we know is there. Um, and it also relies in a lot of ways, and this is again, something I'm going to pick up more on when we get to Two Towers and Return of the King with Aowen. Um, but this notion of like violence as empowerment, um, and that sort of like ideological decision, um, Goes through to a lot of the other elements of the film, um, and a lot of the other aesthetic choices. Um, and I can't, I feel bad because I keep saying this, but like this is going to be something that we're going to come back to, like with the two towers and like Theoden and his changes from book to film. But this notion of like um, the central message of the Lord of the Rings books is is one of pacifism and like the horrors of war, and, and you don't get as hard line of a of a an emphasis on pacifism in the films as you do in the movies and that's a specific ideological choice and whether or not you read that in terms of like ramping up to the Iraq war or um well I guess more accurately Afghanistan the invasion of Afghanistan or whether you read that as sort of like a general cultural turn towards not really accepting pacifism as like serious um thank you to Tony Blair and Bill Clinton for that one um it's it's important to acknowledge that (laughs) Um, And I think this is like one of these things where, you know, um, I'm often told that I can like sit high and mighty on my um, like historian's throne and look back from the year 2021 um, and say, you know, this is like morally and ideologically weird stuff um, and not necessarily the choices that I would have made. And people will say, well, you know, you can do that because you've got it in retrospect. Um, But in the case of these films, actually... Uh, Tolkien in his books takes a much better position ideologically than the films do, um, and so that is like an important um, comparison that I think is necessary to to talk about. And then, as I take a big, t- <laughs> deep breath here, as I'm monologuing at you all about like something quite grim, um, it's also necessary to talk about. Um, a lot of the latent racism that is involved in these films. Um, and as much as we can love the films and love what they do, it, it's also almost impossible to ignore, um, or or not almost impossible, it is not politically good or responsible of us to ignore where racism shows up in these films. Um, and, and one point that I would like to make, and it's not just because I'm a Tolkien apologist, um, and I will note that, Tolkien's racism shows up frequently and viciously in the books, um, but there are points in these movies where the racism reflected on screen is actually significantly worse um, in terms of like its vitriol um, than what shows up in in the books, which is I think significant and and for me that is most evident in the portrayals like the like actual costuming and and makeup design of the orcs. Uh, the higher dream and the Easterlings. Um, and we'll get to these all sort of uh, as they show up. Um, but in this particular episode, we're, we're starting to get the orcs for the first time. Um, and these are like overtly racialized, um, portrayals uh, of these racers or these species um and i and i don't think that that's something that we can necessarily ignore and like i think it's like our our responsibility as like people who are politically conscious to talk about these things and like i'm (laughs) like i i i don't want to say that tolkien didn't have these points of horrific racism in the books he absolutely did but it is significant that 50 years later when you know allegedly we've had all of these super successful civil rights movements um these points of racism still show up and go largely unremarked upon. And as I am losing my voice doing all of this, I will, I will like wrap up this like um, bitch session essentially um, by pointing out as well that like, um, that, that these ideological choices um, are, are worth commenting on, but this is not like me canceling these films. And, you know, we can have discussions offline or, or like off a podcast or whatever about like whether or not canceling is real. But like, I think it's important for us to be able to look at these things that we love um, with a critical eye and to say like, I love these films more than anything else, but also there are things that are not great about them. And those things can't be ignored. And as we talk about these things that can't be ignored, it um, like evolves and kind of strengthens our, our our love of the art and our love of the story because we can think about it in a way that isn't sort of just like blind significance. If I said that right, and I totally didn't. So with that, <laughs> I will stop.
0: <laughs> uh, to, to be clear here, Emily has my full endorsement on all these points. Um, I will say specifically that uh, definitely the portrayal of the Easterlings and the Haradrim, which is very orientalist in nature, and definitely Ori- orientalist in the sense that it is depictions of Middle Easterners or South Asians, which is my identity. Um, I'm from the South Asian diaspora, so. Trust me, those, those things aren't great. And despite that, The Two Towers is still arguably possibly my favorite film, period. So I don't think we would have this sort of discussion and this kind of meaty discourse about, um, you know, the ideology of cinema if we didn't actually love these films. So when we do approach it critically, whether it's from this angle or any other kind of storytelling or political angle, uh, please know we're not saying that these films should not be viewed, um, that you should feel bad for liking them. In fact, like Legolas, you know, putting some arrows in the elephants is, or Oliphant, sorry, um, is one of my favorite moments. And um, I think this is one of the places where I'm very much in conflict because I love Tolkien's theme of pacifism. It's something I wasn't super aware of until my most recent reread. Um, I think, Uh, In the books, there's this whole thing where Frodo just will not carry a sword in Mordor, which I think is just so powerful. And we will talk about that when we get to the Mordor parts of this story. Um, And if you followed me uh, from my Metal Gear podcast, a key point of all those Metal Gear Solid games is that you can play them all pacifistically, and you can do them without actually killing people, Um, more or less. There's definitely, you know, story parts where characters die and stuff, Um, but like, pacifism is a very important thing to me. Um, It's a very important thing to most of the art that I enjoy. And rejecting violence is very important. And I think that is a theme that is lost in these movies. But kind of, you know outing myself as being kind of inconsistent on this matter. I did mention in the opening episode that I really love these movies as action movies. Uh, so it is kind of one of those things where some of the coolest parts of the movies to me are also the parts I feel kind of lose some of the most important theme from Tolkien's work. But, um, I I think you you just should be ready for us. Me and Emily um, are not very shy where our politics lie, um, but we're only grappling with the stuff because we love it. uh, And by no means does it mean that these films aren't, you know, as great as we've been, you know, hailing them as, you know, through the first three or four episodes anyways.
1: Yeah. And I think, like, it's it's also important to note, and, like, I, I think, like, I've been lucky because I have had this, like, the shit bullied it to me as, like, over the course of my, like, history training, but, like, the ability to look at things of the past and to appreciate them for what they did, but also to appreciate them for what they say about where we were – Um and so, being able to to look at Lord of the Rings and be like, "This film rocks," um, and or these films rock, um, and also to be able to look at it and be like, "And this is so obviously representative of like some of the like more batshit stuff that people believed in the 1990s," is also in itself kind of fun and good and interesting, and like it should be like a, a like a point of excitement. I think that we can that we have something that's so clearly preserves and, and portrays a certain mindset from a, a period of time that like thanks to like the the deprecation of like internet files and the like lack of like consistent archiving is like a time period that is becoming increasingly inaccessible to us. Mm-hmm. Um, so like even if I am a bit harsh on like certain things it is because like, I am grateful that it is there and that we can talk about it. Um, and that also that it is so mainstream and that so many people like it that like we can use this as an example of talking about why like, you know, um, girl boss guns feminism is bad um, and people will get it um, instead of having to like use more obscure exa- examples that people wouldn't get normally. So. Yeah. So so that that is my like grouchy two cents.
0: (laughs) And um, I'm going to do a positive fact check, as in confirm something that Emily said that she wasn't that sure about. Um, I know you you said the war in Iraq was kind of ramping up and then you kind of pivoted to the war in Afghanistan, which started in the fallout of, uh, you know, 9-11 and late 2001. But prior uh, to 9-11 and all through the years 99, 2000, 2001, uh, the U.S. was saber-rattling with Iraq and uh, Iran well before the events of 9-11. So much so, um, to go back to Metal Gear Solid again, the original treatment for Metal Gear Solid 2 was actually going to be involved with the iraq Iran conflict. This was in development. Between 1998 and 2001, at the same time as *Lord of the Rings*, and uh, the producer, the director of those games, Hideo Kojima, actually scrapped the whole Iran-Iraq stuff because it seemed like the U.S. was just on verge of going to war with the with one or both. Or I can't remember the exact details, but it was all like kind of on the table in terms of the political discourse at the time. So Afghanistan kind of became the target post 9/11. But the last, the end of the Clinton years, and especially the beginning of Bush's term, was very focused on Iraq, well before uh, 9-11, and then the lies about WMDs and all that kind of stuff. So um, you were very correct in uh, pinning that one on Iraq in terms of where the zeitgeist was at the time.
1: Yeah, like, this is, like, this is one of these things that I love about these films as well, and and also the books, is that, like, I get to have these conversations, and, like, I do not remember the 1990s because I was born in 98, but, like, that is something that, like, I don't think I ever would have been able to, like, talk about or know about or, like, read into other 1990s, like, other things produced in the 1990s if I hadn't, like, been able to have these conversations about Lord of the Rings, like, it is one of these brilliant historical documents for that point.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, just... Two more quick notes I want to add on this, since we've kind of opened Pandora's box on it, <laughs> is that um, people didn't see the Lord of the Rings and then kind of fix their attitudes on this. Because a decade later, when Game of Thrones was starting, we'll still see a lot of the same racism and Orientalism uh, wrapped up in the Dothraki, uh, who Daenerys travels with in the first couple seasons, uh, who get kind of pushed to the back uh through later seasons but a lot of the same issues with what's you know how the Easterlings and the Hierodrim are depicted um can also be uh extrapolated to you know uh what how the Dothraki were treated in Game of Thrones and I think some of that also is you know coming from Martin's source material there and then the very last bit you know in discussing all this is that there is going to be new Lord of the Rings content coming soon uh You know, on Amazon and we can see, you know, how are they going to adjust? Are they going to maybe cast, you know, not all white people for uh, these things? Are they going to, you know, be more sensitive to um, what flavor of feminism? Are we still going to be, you know, third wave feminism, girl bossing and gatekeeping all over the place? Or is it going to be, you know, a little more evolved? Um, you know, and hopefully catching the more modern zeitgeist. So, um, like you said, it was definitely very much a product of its political times. Uh, but now 20 years later, we can both reflect back on, uh, what that meant, both for good and for ill. But then also we can kind of track how new stuff that emerges in the Tolkien verse, which is a phrase that kind of makes me not feel great. Um, But we can see how uh, future uh, projects kind of try to work with that criticism and try to massage it out. Again, going back to the Game of Thrones thing, there's a new Game of Thrones prequel coming, House of the Dragon. And you can already see that there's more of a focus on getting more women and people of color in the writer's room, as well as casting um, not just all white, you know, blonde haired people for the major roles um in the story. So, um, seeing uh, art kind of react to itself and stuff from the same universe react to itself and react to criticism is definitely something we're interested in.
1: Yeah, and I think this this brings up another really interesting point and I like tend to say this sometimes to be really inflammatory, but I also sort of mean it, which is that like um it, in the context of Lord of the Rings specifically, um there were lots of women in in the writers room. Um and it is significant and in some ways depressing to me that I think the like um, women characters presented in these films as written by women screenwriters are actually less developed and less interesting and less ideologically sound than the women characters as written by women um, Fifty-something-year-old English Catholic man who almost certainly voted Tory his whole life, um, and I think like that kind of relationship between like um, the ideological decisions that we make and like how how much we think about like what our politics are and how we reflect those politics, especially in the context of like ni- the 1990s and the post-ideology world where like things are just moral now, um, is really important to to think about as we go through these things. Um, and yes. Yes, it is definitely something that um, is changing a lot with Game of Thrones and with Star Wars, and I'm not going to kick open that door too hard, but like it is something worth bearing in mind as we go through these things. Um, and also I think is closely related to, and this is I'm trying to work this segue in, um, to how, like for example, actors like Christopher Lee, who plays Saruman, um, think about their characters and engage with the the source material and the changing source material right the way through
0: wonderful segue. <laughs> we'll use that as a, as a way to go into our recap for this episode. Having sent Sam and Frodo off, Gandalf rides hard for Isengard, seeking counsel from the head of the Wizard Order, Saruman the White, played by Christopher Lee. Lee, famous for his roles as Dracula, the man with the golden gun, and I guess Count Dooku, is also a noted Tolkien fan, which we'll probably get into more in a later episode. Gandalf informs Saruman of his latest discoveries, all while Lee is making the biggest I am clearly a villain face. Gandalf clearly smokes too much weed to notice, an accusation Sauruman himself lobs at his quote-unquote old friend. The way Lee drips out his lines like, so the ring of power has been found, is perfectly menacing though. Apologies for my bad Christopher Lee impression. Sauruman continues with the I am obviously bad and evil vibes by spilling his own knowledge. Sauron's am- armies have been rebuilt, and a great eye has taken hold of the land. Its sight fixed westward towards the dominion of men. Saruman has been keeping tabs on the goings-on in Mordor with a palantir, a seeing stone that gave its name to a shitty Silicon Valley surveillance startup. Just blot all of that. The grey wizard warns the white about using the seeing stone, but when Gandalf goes to cover it up, the great eye flashes on screen. The hour is later than you think. Saruman goes on. The Nine have crossed the River Isen, disguised as Riders in Black. They're going to get that hobbit and his little Sam, too. Gandalf breaks for the exit, but at every turn, Count Dooku force slams the door in his face. Wizard fight ensues, and honestly, who doesn't love watching a bunch of old men pointing sticks at each other and writhing on the floor? There's something very classic about this depiction of a wizard's duel that I really appreciate. Saruman uses the dark side of the force to take Gandalf's staff, and with both wizards' weapons, he launches Gandalf to the top of Orthanc, where he'll be imprisoned at the Tower of Zenith. I gave you the chance of aiding me willingly, but you have elected the way of pay.
1: So this is um, a favorite seen in some ways for a lot of like the Silmarillion fans, because it's one of the scenes that gets the most heavy hitting into references to the Silmarillion. Um, my disclaimer is that I have read the Silmarillion once, um, which is the number of times that I've read Marx's Das Kapital. And if you put the two books between me, I would pick Das Kapital every time because the Silmarillion is so dense and hard to read. Nonetheless, I'm going to try and do some <laughs> background here on the various uh, moving parts that that we get introduced to in this scene. Um, the first one that I think I should probably get out of the way um, is Saruman himself. Um, and Saruman is uh, not a man, even though he, he, he looks like a man, and that's not like me making a moral judgment. He is of um, the race called the Istari, um, and they are effectively... Um, Angels, I, I think that's probably the closest um analogue that I can use. And again, like Tolkien book fans, please don't roast me for this. Um I know allegory is not Tolkien's thing, but like they are they are angels essentially sent by the gods of Arda of Earth um to watch over um the peoples of Middle Earth um and to work against Sauron um and to hinder him at every turn. Um, the SRA are kind of short-handed both like by fans and within the books and movies as wizards. So like it's totally normal and acceptable to say wizards. And of the wizards, there are, I'm gonna get this wrong. There's like five. Radagast, Gandalf, Saruman, and the two blue wizards. Five. Um and um, and the two blue wizards are off in the east, and even Gandalf is like, I don't remember their names anymore, which is classic. Um Anyways, these wizards slash Istari exist to 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 hinder Sauron, but they also kind of tend to pick sides, so to speak, in their time in Middle Earth. Um, Radagast the Brown um, chooses the side of the animals, which is, I think, is lovely. He's this like hippie out hanging with his rabbit pals, just delightful. Uh, the Blue Wizards, as I mentioned, go east, so they're dealing with like the Easterlings and, and those people who live beyond the Sea of Rune. Um, Gandalf picks the hobbits mostly, although he does have some interactions as like we see with, for example, like the elves of M. um, and does show up um around town he's a man about town and um, Saruman very very interestingly picks the side of men um, and while he does have like a long and like storied engagement with the elves especially Galadriel of Lotharian, um, he is definitely of team men um and this is important and it's not necessarily played up in the movies and i'm i'm not here saying that it should be played up in the movies it's just not because it would be unwieldy to do um but the fact of saruman really playing hard for 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 team man um means that his fall um his acceptance that saruman will inevitably win and that the 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 case of the free peoples of middle earth is hopeless is a lot more understandable because the men are largely led I guess, spiritually and morally, by Gondor. And Gondor is in a real shit state, um, and there is no hope in Gondor. Um, and so given that his interaction, Sour man's interaction with the rest of Middle-earth predominantly comes through his interaction with the men who are feeling incredibly hopeless, it's therefore quite easy to see why he's like, fuck it, Team Sauron now. Um, and, and, and sort of... As part of his various duties, because I guess he has to have a job. Uh, classic. Um, he's also leader of the White Council, which is the council of the wisest of, wisest and most powerful. These kind of these two things are kind of always connected in Middle Earth, um, and that is a council that includes Galadriel, um, and Elrond and Kiriadon the Shipwright, who doesn't get a show and the films but is quite a lad he's like the only elf with like a beard canonically weird um and Gandalf and uh Sauron and so he's the leader of that um Mm -hmm. and the reason I mention this is because these are a, a group of people who have like quite an intense emotional and political relationship with one another and they have been like at the forefront of standing against Sauron for thousands of years and I really don't think I can overstate how much of a psychological wound it is for all of these people that Saruman defects. So that is like, in essence, Saruman. Up until we meet him, um, and I, I hope that hasn't been like <laughs> too verbose. But he is a, he is an interesting and, and very very tragic, almost Shakespearean tragic character, which I'm sure Christopher Lee would have loved um, if he were still alive and listened to podcasts.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's all great, and it's like it's again, it's not necessary grounding, especially since the films really don't hit us with most of that stuff. Um, but I do like how it does better contextualize this world where Gandalf and Sauron exist, and there seems to be a hierarchy between them. And there's also obviously the relation between the wizards and the leaders of the elves, we'll say like Elrond and Galadriel. Um, and it is, you know, the Hobbit movies are kind of complicated, but I do actually. I did enjoy, whether it's actually good or not, uh, the scenes where we see some of the White Council and especially them, uh, you know, going against Dal Gul'dur, um, which, again, is more just like kind of blockbuster cinema action CGI stuff. But um, it was just kind of fun seeing that actually in motion. So, um, but you're right, you know, everyone is pretty much disheartened when it turns out that Sauron is not on the side fighting against Sauron, but is rather uh, joined up for him. And we'll talk about the converging and diverging uh, or, you know, common goals that Sauron and Saruman have because the books and the text do kind of play them a little bit differently. But we'll maybe wait until we get to Two Towers where um, the movies kind of take a firm stance on where Saruman is going with his relationship to Sauron. A couple other things I did want to mention here is that uh, Gandalf mentions, uh, I think he bleakly uh, mentions the enemy, but this also applies to Saruman, is that he has many spies in his uh, employ, birds and beasts. Uh, We see that quite visually with um, the, what? i forgot what they're called crabine uh from crabine, Dunland.
1: yeah
0: uh when uh, the fellowship first sets out and gimli thinks it's a puff of cloud um but it's actually um whether uh, birds bats i'm not entirely sure um but probably birds because it was daylight um but they're kind of like t- uh, reporting on where the fellowship is and uh, flying back to or and giving updates to uh what's it called? Uh, Saruman, which again, I'm going to make so many A Song of Ice and Fire, Game of Thrones parallels as we talk about Lord of the Rings. I see a little bit of Varys uh, here, Varys the spider. And when Varys talks about his little birds who are spies, he actually refers to young children who he's cut out the tongue of, um, but he you know, commonly refers to them as his birds. And uh, because of the way that uh, Varys just kind of knows stuff, all throughout the Song of Ice and Fire story, people often think that he might be a wizard or have some kind of mysticism, even though his his you know his magic is knowledge and just letters and learning you know things from people and how to use it against them. But I really did like um, that parallel, and you can see some of that inspiration in Varys um, as Martin wrote him. Um, I want to talk about a couple of Saruman's weapons, for lack of a better word. Ones we don't see as much in the film, um, but the voice of Saruman um, is definitely something very important, and we'll get to it in a Return of the King extended edition. But even in the Two Towers, when uh, Legolas, Gand- or, sorry, Legolas, Aragorn, and Gimli are in Fangorn Forest, Aragorn says, do not let him speak. He will put a spell on us. Um, so the voice of Saruman is supposed to be like One of his like, you know, if this was an RPG, that would be his special skill that sets him apart from the other cast members, even though, you know, he's a villain, not part of the RPG group, Um, but his ability to command people with his voice, um, you know, kind of slip a little poison into people's ears metaphorically, which, you know, obviously makes me think of Hamlet because that's how King Claudius, you know, killed uh, Hamlet or Claudius killed the king to become king himself. Um, anything you want to throw at the voice of Saruman? Because you probably know more than I do.
1: <laughs> no, I'm just absolutely thrilled at that Hamlet reference. Um, I'm Just absolutely delighted by that, because I, I think it is true. And I think um, as you get into uh, Saruman as a character, you do get this kind of elder statesman fall from grace. That is very Shakespearean about it. And like, um I, I I think that um is helped in large part by like the gravitas of um Christopher Lee, but is also like something that's definitely in the text. Um, I'm just absolutely tickled by that comparison right now. <laughs>
0: well, thank you. Um and then the last thing again, talking about quote-unquote weapons, is Saruman has a wizard staff. And I can't remember if this is from the text or not, but one of the things I absolutely love is that Saruman's staff or the, you know, the head of the staff is actually patterned after the head of Orthang, uh, which is a giant tower we're going to talk about in a second. But it, it maybe its most notable outward feature is that its uh, peak, its zenith, its top has like four protruding blades um, that kind of you know uniformly surround uh, the center of the tower. Um, but it also is what or- ordains Saruman's staff, and I just love that visual cue of um, this is his staff, this is his tower, and they're basically inextricable. Um, they're both designed in the same way
1: yeah and i think the like look of the like staves for the wizards is something that's totally um underrated but really really important because Gandalf's by contrast is a pipe holder. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is like one of these things where like Sauron's is like or Sauron's or, or rather is like ruthlessly efficient in what it's doing. And Gandalf is like I'm going to stick my pipe in this staff that I use for magic and that is going to be the most important thing to me and I just think that is like a like really two genders situation there.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Cause you said, uh, otherwise, you know, uh, Saruman staff staff is very Spartan. Um, the phrase, you know, Saruman has a mind of metal is said, I think, by Treebeard later on in the series. And you definitely see that his staff has more of a metallic look to it, which will kind of foreshadow the, like, kind of industry that is represented by the course that Isengard and Saruman take. Whereas Gandalf's is very much a wooden-looking staff, um, you know, which, you know, kind of reflects his closer connection to nature. Um, But it's also, like, if you look at it, it's not just a straight staff. It kind of has branches. It looks like it kind of twists and turns, which kind of, in way embodies the way that Gandalf is kind of like a gray pilgrim. He kind of wanders from here to there. He's not always going in a straight line. Um, And I think it's like a great way that the props are shown um, to uh, capture that character uh, for both of these winners. Again, there's two wizards within you, um, you know, and which one are you? Are you Gandalf or are you Saruman? Uh, So that's probably a good point to pivot over to Orthanc, which is the tower that uh, Saruman lives in. And before I go into the history, I really want to get into the linguistics or rather I want to have Emily get into the linguistics because this is a really, really fun part of Tolkien's world building.
1: Yes, so this 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 I love. Like Tolkien fills all of his writings with lots of like cute little linguistic jokes, because originally his audience was other linguistics professors at Oxford, um, and also CSOS. Um, and so he really goes hard in like making cutesy little references, um, and Orthanc is actually one of them, because it means two different things across two different languages. So in Sindarin, which is the Elvish tongue and also the tongue of the nobility in Gondor, Orthanc basically means like Mount Bang. And in uh, the Rohir language, the language of the Rohirub, um it means cunning mind. Um, and this is actually where, or think, is derived. It is actually, I think, an Old English term. In 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 truth, in reality, um, but Tolkien took it to use for uh, Lord of the Rings and weaved it into his other languages. Um, and this is actually something that comes up quite a bit. Um, so, so there there are two important things here. Um, the language of the Rohirrim is largely based off of um, Old English, um, but. Not actually. Um, Tolkien uses Old English as a stand-in for the Rohir language because he didn't ever develop a Rohir language as such, and the effect that he was hoping to draw out by using um, words like Orthank, which could potentially sound like English to us um, – was to to create this, like, sense of both, like, um, unity as in, like, we can understand and know these things and, like, have familiarity with them, but also, like, distance. Um, You know, we we all don't, like, sit down and read Beowulf, for example, and this is where a lot of, like, Tolkien's essay on Beowulf is where he hashes out a lot of what he's doing here with the, like, Rohir language. So that's the first element, is this, like, using language and, like, translations of languages and, like, evolutions in language to, like, create both a sense of familiarity familiarity and distance. The second thing is Tolkien taking words from other languages and throwing them typically into Cinder and to create kind of little jokes or, like, cute little Easter eggs, almost. I feel like that is a word that, like, would make Tolkien cringe, but whatever. Um, Another example of this, like... um, Mount Fang slash cutting mind for or think um, phenomenon is the brandy wine, which is the one of the rivers of the Shire, um, is allegedly a corruption of Baranduin, which in Sindarin means golden brown river from Baran meaning golden brown and Duen meaning river like in Anduin. Um, and obviously, Tolkien came up with Brandywine first. It's it's also a river in the US. It's quite a common river name. Um, and later added on this Brandywine element to it to to kind of give it that like sense of evolution within the world. Um, but this is something that that Tolkien does with Earth, and does with quite a few other elements. And it's just like really really lovely and sweet. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And thank you for that uh, linguistics lesson because I I did not know all that, Um, or at least I learned it from you uh, previously uh, pretty recently. So that's really cool. Um, Getting into Orthanc as a physical artifice, it is a tower made of stone, um, and it's hardened to the point that no magic or weapon is really able to damage it externally. Um, It was constructed during the Second Age, uh, somewhere between... 3320 and 3430, Um, it's not exactly known, and again, we're not going to concern ourselves too much with dates, um, but roughly it uh, was built sometime between the formation of Gondor and the formation of the Last Alliance. Um, It was originally an outpost in the service of the realms of Gondor, but the garrison would eventually be abandoned, and the keys of Orthanc would then be kept at Minas Tirith, um, and then Sauruman settled into Isengard in the Third Age, 2759, Um, At first, he was um, given approval to uh, settle in there by the steward of Gondor, who was named Baron at the time. Um, But by uh, the 2953 of the Third Age, he claimed Isengard for his own and not as, you know, whatever, you know, giving fealty to Gondor. Um, I don't know if you have anything you want to add to that
1: um and just that it coincides with the creation of uh Rohan as a state um so Rohan um the land of Rohan um which is yeah the land of Rohan is um initially a big part of Gondor um there's an oath taken between the Steward Carrion and the soon to be king earl of um of Rohan or the Eorothad um and so when you hear Arlingus it's it's for him um Saruman uses the opportunity of Rohan becoming a state independent of Gondor to basically be like old deals off. This place is mine now. And the Rohirrim, who are like, um, are almost entirely an illiterate society, who like are certainly not half as powerful as Gondor, don't really get a say in it, but are also like quite good to have a wizard at our border because the guys on the other side of the border, uh, the Dunlendings are like not ideal neighbors next door neighbors and if we put a wizard in between us and them he'll protect us and for a long time he does dot dot dot
0: And then the last major piece of world building or wizard lore uh, that we get here is—I guess this isn't wizard lore per se—but um, the Palantir, um, the see, the lost seeing stone, um, the magic ball that you can look into and for far seeing or divination. It's a very classical, you know, mystical trope in fantasy. Um, but you know, we get to see how. Um, it's, you know, portrayed here. Um, the palantir we see is called the Orthanc stone in the text, and it's supposed to be one of the seven seeing stones, which Emily can tell us all about.
1: Oh, no. Um, so, um, and I have a note here to not mispronounce a name that I'm about to mispronounce anyways. No, I'm not. I'm going to do this. Silmarillion fans, don't come for me. Um, the the palantiri were likely made by Fanor, who was an elf uh, who made lots of things and caused lots of problems. Um, the Silmarils of the Silmarillion, which are, uh, the problematic precursor to the one ring are made by Faenor. Uh, he has lots of problems. It's okay. Uh, yeah, he's, he's a lot, he's a handful. Anyways, he, he likely made the Palantiri, um, and passed them off. Um, through various means like they get handed down quite a bit to the Numenoreans um and Numenor in brief is an island off the west coast of what is now Middle Earth um it's where the men um Lived originally as they were moving from east, where they like awoke in the east to west, which is where like Valinor is. They lived in Numenor for a bit, it's an island. They had the Palantiri there. Uh, they did some stupid shit like worshipping Sauron, um, trying to avoid death. Um, big wave killed them. Um, as they were fleeing, or as some of the Numenorean faithful, the ones who never worshipped Sauron, uh, were fleeing, and that includes Elendil, Isildur and Anarian, and um, they brought seven of the Palantiri with them to Middle-earth. And it, it, it is, like, it is wild because, like, these things are, like, incredibly powerful and, like, they have, like, a really long-storied provenance to them. Um, Elendil, Isildur, and Anarian basically use them as, like, ring, like front doorbells um so seven of them are put across the kingdoms of Gondor and Arnor um and over time a whole bunch of them are lost um like one of them is lost in Osgiliath in the um Anduin um the few that we like in the universe know of as still existing are the Orthanc stone um and then the stone uh the Palantiri that Denethor has in Menas Tirith um a crucial element to this is that you can only like effectively wield them if you are like a person who has a right to be a leader. So Saruman can like use it and chat to Sauron. Denethor can use it to chat to Sauron. Pippin <laughs> when he picks it up, spoilers later, um is not going to be able to wield it in the same way. He's only going to get Sauron staring him down because he's not of the like rightful line. Anyways, that that is in brief the palantiri um and it is horrible and fucked up that palantir this startup company has stolen something that is like quite interesting and turned it into something god-awful and depressing as silicon valleys want to do yeah
0: um and also that was an excellent summary because i didn't actually know all that stuff i'm very well adequate for having a lord of the rings podcast but no that's great and um the idea is that uh there was an thanks or sorry an orthingstone a palantir at uh Minas Ethel, which would go on to become Minas Morgul after Sauron reclaimed, you know, the lands around Mordor for himself again. Um, And it is believed that using that one um, is how he was able to then enthrall um, Saruman over at Ornthink or, you know, get into Denethor's head, uh, you know. So that's Sauron's, you know, his endpoint or his his cell phone uh, to get in contact with them. And then one... um, what's it called, visual flair they do as we kind of start moving over to our cinematography section, is that we will see the Eye of Sauron often depicted within the Palantir. Um, We're going to come back in a couple episodes to Isengard, and we'll see Saruman directly taking orders from Sauron, and the Eye of Sauron will be in um, what's it called, the Palantir's glass, and then we'll see that effect again, as you mentioned, when Pippin picks it up in Return of the King, and then he's overwhelmed by it. Um, We literally see the Palantir almost literally catch fire in that moment um, to kind of show that power dynamic that you were speaking to earlier.
1: Yeah, and when we come back to it later, I will mention that it also catches fire in Aragorn's hands, which, at least in the movie-verse, lends credence to my take that you should not be king. But, you know, we'll come back to that later when I'm slightly more insane.
0: (laughs) You will be more insane by the time we get to the end of this uh, (laughs) podcast. Um, So the other kind of cinematography stuff I want to talk about... Um, And this is something we'll kind of uh, lay out here, but then we're going to punctuate in our next uh, time we visit Isengard, is the overhead shot of Gandalf approaching Isengard. Uh, I mean, first, there's just kind of one of those traditional landscape shots that sees Gandalf rides up over a hill and we see Orthanc in the distance. And then it cuts to like an overhead shot that kind of starts on with Gandalf on his horse and kind of zooms out to show like the courtyard or whatever you want to call the direct geographical area surrounding uh, or thing and it's very lush and green um in you know it's supposed to you know very evocative of nature um and this is all supposed to be setting up where we're going to see Eisengard basically three scenes from now um they do a little rule of 3 thing where we kind of see it turn from this lush garden into what will become basically just what an industrial revolution factory with like you know the worst uh, working conditions imaginable
1: yeah, and I think it is like really incredible how much um how like v- like quickly that changes because the first shot is really like a like a New Zealand tourism be real. Like I mean it's obviously more like artfully created than that. And but but it is like basically tourist propaganda for New Zealand. And the shot after that is like and I will make some Brits mad here is basically like an advertisement for like the city of Manchester and that is not necessarily a good thing. Um but it is like remarkable how quickly they make this change happen and how much emphasis there are and we'll we'll, we'll obviously get back to this later but like how much emphasis there is on nature and like the beauty of nature pre-corruption. Mm-hmm.
0: And then um as I've said repeatedly on this podcast and earlier in this episode I love, you know, I love me some action. And we get to see uh, Christopher Lee and Ian McKellen, and I assume they probably have some nice tall stunt doubles doing a lot of this stuff, but they just have a good old-fashioned wizard fight. Um, It's very much, you know, a little bit informed by the cinematic language that was laid down by Star Wars and The Force and kind of moving things with your mind. Um, They kind of use the staff a little bit, interplay with that. Um, But it's just fun to see them kind of writhing on the floor, and they take some good bumps. Uh, Bumps being a pro-wrestling term that I once knew 20 years ago. Um, And, you know, we we see like you know Gandalf writhing against the, um, the walls when uh, Saruman hasn't pinned up uh, we see them kind of like rolling on the floor you know falling directly onto their back um, it's just really great and it's just kind of fun and not something we see like uh, a type of fighting we see very often but it, like I said it's informed by some fighting tropes we do know from Star Wars and other stuff um, but then it kind of tells its own story um, and I mentioned it just feels very classical like I could imagine this is what five-year-old me would picture like wizards fighting looks as, but, you know, they obviously made it look really cool for lack of a better term. And I think some of that uh, prop work and that design work with the staffs really helps because the staffs really take center stage in this moment.
1: Yeah. And I think there's like a certain like agelessness that's introduced to both of these characters. And like, I'm like, I'm trying to be like careful about how I phrase this because I don't want it to seem like I don't think that like older people can be physically fit. But like, both of these guys are meant to be hundreds of years old. And yet you get like you know, there there are some. There's like some like I think visual incongruity in seeing like men who look very very old fighting with like the like swiftness and dexterity that they do fight in this. Um, but I think there is something kind of interesting and like slightly magical about that because it's definitely a sense that this is not your normal. Your normal, I say. Uh, Your normal fight between like eighty year olds, like this is like a very unique, like powered up situation, and that is like one of these small little ways that the that the movies really like add the magic back into the world.
0: Yeah, uh, when you say that, I'm actually thinking of the original Star Wars 1977 fight between uh, Alec Guinness and. Uh, David Prowse in the Darth Vader outfit. And that's just, you know, kind of two old men like waving sticks at each other. And I feel like this is almost how um, if Lucas had all the abilities to, you know, do that kind of stunt work and CGI work like he would do in like The Phantom Menace, um, it might turn out something similar to this, uh, which is why I couldn't resist calling it like, you know, force pulls and force slams uh, in the recap of this episode.
1: Yeah, I mean, imagine if they CG replace like Saruman with Yoda in Attack of the Clones. <laughs> Just for some nightmare fuel there.
0: Oh, God. Please, please. Let's, uh, we'll, I might edit that out because I cannot curse our listeners with that image. No, I'm going to leave it in. Uh, not to uh, belabor this point, but again, I've talked repeatedly about how much they use. Narration and world building uh, by giving it to some of you know the most talented and respected actors in the cast. Um, we have Saruman doing some of that world building for us here when he's talking about Sauron's armies, and we even see a nice little trick where um, when Gandalf's riding to Isengard, we kind of get an overlay of Saruman narration talking about how the hour is getting late. You know the fires of Mordor are started up again. Um, But then it kind of blends perfectly into um the dialogue that Saruman and Gandalf will have when Gandalf actually arrives. And this kind of narration tool actually kind of makes it seem like Saruman and Gandalf are kind of having a conversation mentally, you know, using the Force, Um, you know, kind of starting this conversation before they're physically in proximity with each other. Whether or not they actually were or not, it doesn't really matter. But it does, again, create that sense of magic and wonder that should be surrounding these wizard characters.
1: Yeah, and that like sense of storybook as well, because like, um, I, like I feel like it's my like favorite little fact ever. But like, the the reason the Hobbit as like a book came into existence I, I, as a book, not as a story, is because Tolkien was telling it to his son. Um, and his son kept picking up on factual errors um, between each, you know, bedtime story each night and being like, well, you you said the dwarf was, you know, brown hair last night. And now now he's got ginger hair. And Tolkien was like, "Ah, oh, shit, my kid's smarter than me. I got to start writing it down. Um, and that book became, um, you know, in a hole in the ground, Dwell the Hobbit. Um, and it became The Hobbit, which in turn became Lord of the Rings. But But it was fundamentally at its start a Bedtime story. And that level of sort of like vocal overlay is a bedtime story. You know, it's something that you get in a bedtime story. It's not necessarily something you get in like straight, harsh, gritty reality. And it almost makes me think, and in some ways, and maybe this is just like my special brain kick again here, but like it kind of reminds me of um the Princess Bride. Um, and That's that feeling great. of, like, having someone, like, older, like, whether a grandparent or whoever, like, reading a bedtime story for you and doing all of these fun voices, um, that, that has the same vibe for me, but, like, slightly more unsettling because it's the bad guy speaking.
0: Very much so. Uh, I love that Princess uh, Bride uh, comparison. And then the last thing I want to mention about the score here is um, we don't actually get the Isengard Saruman leitmotif that'll kind of drive through the next two movies yet because it's going to be tied to um, Saruman's betrayal and very tied to the creation of the Urukai. Um, so they don't actually drop that light motif till we return to Isengard um, a couple scenes down the road, which we'll cover in a future episode. But um, when Saruman and Gandalf are having their little wizard duel, uh, we do get some more of that Gregorian chanting in the background and one thing i learned is that a lot of that chanting is actually using uh black speech or the language of Mordor is what those words are i don't actually know what they're singing um i assume it's something about the one ring who cares um but i do like how they um got the language of mortar um kind of worked into the saruman um again it's not his leitmotif but in this moment where saruman is betraying essentially you know The other wizards and elves and men uh, to align with Sauron and Mordor. I like how they work the language of Mordor into the music that's happening as they battle.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I think this is one of the most like genius little things that they do throughout the films with um with the music as they like routinely rely on the uh varying languages of the legendarium to create lyrics um one of my favorite ones that we'll get to a little bit later is in Boromir's death scene when they take like a speech from the books and and translate it into Quenya actually which always surprised me but I think has a beautiful effect and I think it is like the fact that they do this is such like a lovely little touch and it really does show that they are like actively trying to engage with and like positively transform the source material in a way that works for for cinema and and i really just like very much love and appreciate that sense of like reverence they have for the source text
0: So now we'll take it to our token, token book analysis. Uh, And we've kind of discussed a little bit about uh, the Order of Wizards, the Meyer, the White Council, but I want to give a little more space here for Emily to add anything else she would like at this point.
1: Yeah, so I, I gave an overview of the White Council, but one of the things that I want to get into talking about slightly is the the way that like power changes and like the lay of power changes between um the books and the film. Um and the White Council is obviously not present in these movies. It is present in the Hobbit. Um I've only seen the first two of the Hobbit films, so God knows if it's in the third one. Um, I may never find out, if I'm lucky. Um, but oh, I'm going to make the, you
0: watch it for this uh, podcast now.
1: <laughs> the monkey's it's, it's paw terrible. curls.
0: It's terrible. I will apologize a little bit for parts of the first two movies, but woof at that third. Like, woof. Like, I... I like everything, and I just cannot like that third album movie. <laughs> oh, no. But sorry, oh. I, I, I don't want to... Which might make it great podcast material, because people love podcasts about hating movies, so... Um.
1: Yes. <laughs> Let the hate flow through you. Oh, yes. Um, another great Star Wars line that could also fit in this one. <laughs> Anyways. Um, so so the White Council, um, in effect, represents like the balance of power, and not like in a like power is spread this way as in like who has all of the power in Middle earth. Um and in the books, no, sorry, I'll start with the movies. In the movies, um, it is made clear that there are no men on the White Council. Um the White Council is glad in the movies, is Gladriel, Elrond, Gandalf, Saruman, yeah, and Cardan is not on there. Um in the books, um it is all of the same people plus Círdan who actually shows up. Um, but there's a very different sense of how this plays out. So it's Galadriel is kind of the representative of the elves. Saruman and Gandalf are like, Saruman speaks for the Astari. Gandalf kind of speaks for like everybody else in Middle-earth. Like he doesn't really speak for the dwarves, but he kind of speaks for the hobbits. He's the like auxiliary delegate. Um, Elrond, Elrond hath elven. Um, functions as the 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 voice of men um and it is significant that he is not played up in this way and that Saruman's relationship to the men and that's capital m there is not played up in the same way in the films because there's the sense of like subjugating um the role of men in Wider universe, and, and in a lot of ways, like not playing up the fact that Saruman thought it was like wise and reasonable and good to make himself an ally to the men, is a way of kind of taking power in the movie universe away from the men, and they are essentially um, they they've essentially undergone a loss of autonomy and a loss of uh, of like um, competency and capability in the movie universe in the face of all of these like essentially like magicians um, and guys who can do scary things with their minds. Um, and this is significant because it really like builds up the hopelessness of the men's cause, but also really allows them to become the scapegoat in some ways. And this is one of these weird conflicts in, in inherent in, in the way the movies presents these things because they're simultaneously unempowered, but also empowered to be the only ones who can ever fuck up things. Mm-hmm. So, even though they don't have the same power as the elves, they don't have any of the magic, they like don't really have any of the like Istari. I mean, Saruman occasionally shows up, but he's not really helping them out on a daily basis. They don't have this like extra power-up, magical power-up. And yet, it is Galadriel who blames them for everything going wrong with the ring. And yet, it is Saruman who says… You know, well, who doesn't say, but who implies like the strength of men is failing. Um, there's no point dealing with us anymore. We may as well throw in our lot with Saruman, with Sauron. Oh my God, I'm going to do this the whole way through. Um, and it's Elrond who says, who actually says the strength of men is failing. May as well just get on my boat to Valinor because there's not worth, it's not worth fighting around anymore. And I think this like ongoing sort of weakening of this relationship of men is kind of a, a key moment in, Sauron's development because it turns him basically just into a straight up dickhead, which is fine. Like that, like that makes for a good movie, but it also kind of like changes some of the like slight political nuance involved in um, in, in this story, which I also kind of feel gives rise to like this slightly weird and inaccurate criticism that there's like no politics going on in Lord of the Rings. Um, George R. R. Martin is like the big name purveyor of this take, um, and I I hate it. For, like I hate him for it because I think he's wrong, but I also think it's launched like a million other, like badly read takes on the politics of Lord of the Rings. Like the politics are there; they've just been slightly changed, particularly in the context of the 1990s and the post-ideological world um, in the movies. So, so that's there. Um, Saruman is definitely like the bellwether in some ways for this like disempowering of the men folk yeah no, that
0: that's I like honestly had never given much thought to any of that.. Uh, and I think it kind of it's kind of like the films kind of have this feeling like by the end of it, it it falls to men to pick kind of themselves up and kind of put everything in order. Um like they have help from the other races, but that slowly diminishes through the movies. Um, you know, cause like, you know, the elves show up at Helm's Deep, but, uh, when we get to, uh, you know, the battle of Pelennor Fields, it's all men plus, you know, Gandalf and some hobbits. Um, uh, I guess there's a ghost army in there too, that <laughs> helps out, but they used to be men at least. Um, so you kind of see, it's like, there's kind of a, a through line of men have to kind of figure it out on their own after, um, what's it called? All their allies abandon them or kind of just naysay them, think they're not weak, um, which kind of reminds me a little bit of the scouring of the Shire in that in the end, Gandalf's like, no, now you guys have learned how to pick yourself up as hobbits. Now it's your job to deal with this. You know, my part has played in it. Um, you know, you guys have to set your own affairs in order, um, which is not a comparison I had really thought about before, but your wonderful analysis there um, just kind of like lit that light bulb in my head.
1: This is literally just my, like, relentless pro, like, kingdoms of men agitation. Like, I really just, like, I also think in the books they get, like, a really rough go of it, Um, and, like, I I have a whole spiel about the Council of Outrand in the books and how, like, Boromir in particular is really screwed over, Um, and it's just because Tolkien's, like, not really thinking about what the implications of all of his words are. But, yes, the men are good, um, and they are screwed unnecessarily, and it's not their fault. (laughs)
0: Uh, And then uh, the last thing I want to mention here, and it's something we've kind of been tracking throughout our episodes, is that kind of what happens between Gandalf and Saruman, which is this scene and two more scenes that we'll bundle together for an episode in the coming weeks, um, is kind of all told to us mostly through uh, flashback, or rather through story, where we get to the Council of Elrond in Rivendell, and we actually have Gandalf kind of relay most of what uh, what we're going to see depicted on screen like explicitly for us. Um, and then this goes back to something we talked about in our initial episode, is reading The Lord of the Rings, you really get the theme more of how stories are passed on and how much of the plot itself is conveyed via story, like things happen that we, the reader, are not completely clued into uh but then uh what's it called we have a point where someone explains everything that happened whether it's you know what happened with Gandalf at Isengard or what happened with the Ents when you know um what's it called Theoden and all them arrive at uh Orthanc uh following the Battle of Helms Deep and all that kind of stuff um but you know one of the things that film generally does in adaptation is it gives us the chance to actually see those in real time um You know, which, you know, has its pluses or minuses. I definitely think the way they kind of pace this out is good, where they kind of, because they really do set up Saruman as like, I wouldn't say a mini boss, because he's bigger than that, but he's definitely kind of a big bad of the first two films um, to kind of carry that plot until we get to the big face down with uh, Mordor in the final film um, so we get those actual scenes with Sauron early um, we get him built up by Gandalf um, we actually see him you know be powerful because you know if he's you know overpowering Gandalf that immediately puts him over as like you know a main title contender kind of player in this and then we see him obviously just utterly destroy the the biome that is Isengard in service of industry and the war machine so um, so, you know, pluses and minuses, um, I generally like how everything is done. But again, this is a place where the text is able to continue that this is a story about stories and storytelling and keeping that stuff alive. Uh, whereas you, it, it would be really kind of boring if like the Council of Elrond was everyone kind of recounting the stories of what brought them there. They really streamlined the scene for the film just to give it that kind of, you know, fuck yeah moment uh, to kind of launch the next stage of the adventure.
1: Yeah, and there is like one moment that I really like, and there's absolutely no way they could have ever portrayed this in a, in like a way that wouldn't seem laughable on on screen. Um, but um, Gandalf at the Council of Elrond, as he's recounting this episode or think with Saruman and Saruman's betrayal talks about how he looks at Saruman properly for the first time and he sees that Saruman's white robe is actually rainbow colored, and Saruman has this line that's like, "I am become Saruman the Many Colored." And Gandalf quite flippantly replies, I liked the white better. And I mean, there is like literally no way you could have gone full Joseph the Technicolor dreamcoat in this and not have had, like not have like completely ruined the tone of it. But it is one of these things where I'm like, this is a brilliant scene. Um, it could not have been done in in the film at all. The alternative that they've done in the film is also brilliant. And like, like basically, aren't we lucky that we can get both versions of these things and one doesn't diminish the other?
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, this has nothing to do with that, but um, one last A Song of Ice and Fire uh, parallel for you. Um, as you may know, if you're familiar with that story, Renly Baratheon, the younger brother of King Robert, who dies in the first uh, book of A Game of Thrones, he goes on to claim himself as a king. And uh, the kings of Westeros generally have a king's guard who wear white you know white cloaks that's very much the symbolism in that in the books Renley establishes his own king's guard but instead of um white cloaks he chooses rainbow cloaks or many colored cloaks which <laughs> i think is just a small little nod to what um what's it called? Tolkien was doing with Saruman and his, this uh, wizard of many colors thing, even though thematically they don't really link. Cause Renly is not one of those magical uh, players in the game of thrones and isn't much of a player at all because he gets fucking shanked uh, before <laughs> a battle. So, um, but I, but I immediately put those two together, whether or not uh, it was, I was meant to or not. And with that, that closes the book on this episode of my brother, my captain, my podcast. Our email is mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com and my bro, my cap, my pod on Twitter. You can support this podcast by subscribing to my Patreon, patreon.com slash minuclearbomb, which goes towards this and all the other projects I've been working on. Minuclear Bomb, by the way, hey, that's me. I've been Manu. You can find me covering Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sounds Frontiers.
1: And I've been Emily, and you can find me on Twitter at JRRTweeting, and I would love to chat to you about anything and everything Tolkien.
0: Yes, and we gave you a lot of stuff to angrily respond to in this episode, (laughs) and trust me, we actually do want to hear it. Um, Just, you know, be kind, and don't gear it at any one of us. We'll both uh, bear the burden here. And uh, I'd like to toast a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please like and review this podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king.